Hello and welcome into episode 19 of All In With Adam. I hope you guys enjoyed the new intro. Uh, that is by my buddy Joe Hodgin. Joe was episode, I want to say 10, he was on this podcast. Um, awesome producer. He's really into film composition uh, now. It's been his um, working project for quite a while, last year or two. But um, he's always been into audio, phenomenal writer-producer. So I went over to his house uh, for a couple sessions and we we knocked out that song. So hope you guys enjoyed that. I'm still going to, I suppose, refilm some of those intro clips, but only so many podcasts to pull from at the moment. But uh, yeah, I'm happy with that intro. I think it turned out pretty cool. So let me know what you guys think. So today's going to be kind of a unique episode. Really just going to try and catch up on several questions that I've had um, over the last several episodes, really, but many of them actually come from the the carnivore episode. There's a few philosophy questions buried in here. Sorry, computer going off. Um, you know, there's, there's one thing that I've, uh, a balance that I've yet to strike on this podcast, and that is, you know, how do I you know, really delegate my time between this podcast and my drum career, because I do have a full-time career in the drum industry as a content creator, as an educator. I run an online drum school and a very successful YouTube channel, at least by drum industry standards, it's pretty successful. And, you know, it keeps me very, very busy. And I'm so used to engaging with the drum community, answering questions there, taking care of the members on my website, my drum school. You know, I'm so used to putting all of my attention there that many times I get behind on answering questions or keeping up with, uh, people who have just started following this you know, relatively new platform. So in order to catch up, I thought it would be cool to do a Q&A episode. So we're going to touch all sorts of different topics today, ranging from um, carnivore to philosophy to a little bit of light politics and everything in between. So if you guys want to go on the full ride with me, we're starting now. And if you don't, check the timestamps uh, in the description of the YouTube video or the podcast, wherever you're watching. That way you can skip around and just uh, listen to what you want. So yeah, let's hop in. This is episode 19. Let's get the carnivore question out of the way because I know there's a lot of you guys coming from carnivore world. That is by far the most viewed episode on this entire podcast. And let me just briefly talk about that because it, you know, it was not at all a tactic to <laughs> to talk about something very niche and very specific, um, you know, to get a bunch of followers or fans, fans from the carnivore world. Though in hindsight, I guess I should have known that that would have kind of happened because there's not a lot of people that make videos like that talking about a relatively extreme diet in a long format like that. Um, I think the comment that I got on that video that I was, you know, the most happy with that, that repeated a few times was that it's a good podcast to send to someone who has no idea what that diet is. Because many times, you know, you don't get into the carnivore world until you become a, relatively speaking, like a, a nutrition nerd. And for a lot of people, that's just not on the table. Like, there's a bunch of people that don't give a shit about nutrition. Sometimes I find myself in that category, actually, which is why I like carnivore so much. But um, it's been ironic to see that video do so well and bring in so many different people. Because, you know, I, I don't... I don't like the group identity. I don't really identify myself as a carnivore or go around acting and telling people like, I'm a carnivore, what do you eat? Like, <laughs> I really don't, I really don't care. For me, it was very, very personal. But it's been interesting to be introduced to that community um, in such a unique way to have such a, a flood of people with a certain ideology or a certain belief come rushing my way. It was very weird. Also, a handful of crazy vegans. Those are fun. I have never had to deal with those people before, but they're a fun bunch. Anyway, if you're here watching for Carnivore, thank you. I'm glad you're here. I really do find it to be an interesting topic, um, and I hate to disappoint, but there will probably not be another Carnivore-specific episode, but I do have a Carnivore question, so we can knock this one out. Hey Adam, loving the podcast. I'm sure you get this question a lot, but are you still on Carnivore? Um, fairly simple question here, and, and the fairly simple answer is yes, but like 90 plus percent. Um, I think they're calling it Ketovore is what they call it now, but basically a pretty extreme keto. So for me, I've basically compiled a list of vegetables that don't seem to bother me. That's about as far as I've taken it. It's not that many vegetables either. Really, really well-cooked broccoli, really well-cooked carrots, squash, tomatoes, onions, garlic, you know, kind of non-fibrous, extra soft vegetables. Those don't seem to bother me. I can have maybe two servings a day of that kind of thing. But for the most part, 90 to 95%, I'm still on carnivore. Um, you know, it... it Again, I'm not married to this diet, so it would be really nice to come off of it. It's just, that's not really how it works. When your body adapts to such a specific diet, the idea of just sneaking in something that's not on the diet whenever you feel like it, it's not really how it works. Much like if you were vegan for several years and you just wanted to occasionally have a steak, the steak is probably going to make you feel like shit because you don't have any of the enzymes that you need to break down that particular type of food that you don't eat with any regularity. So the diet sort of inherently forces you to be a bit more strict, which sucks 
sucks, um, but I am finding out that there's a, a longer list of vegetables than there used to be that I can actually eat and actually tolerate. So yes, I am still on carnivore. Um, I would say at the very most, you might find a day where I have like two to three servings of heavily cooked soft vegetables. Again, that would be like broccoli, maybe a few bites of asparagus, cooked carrots, um, squash, cucumber, that sort of thing. But yeah, for the most part, still carnivore. And also on that note, really cool, when I did my steroid cycle several months ago, I've been off for a little over a month now doing a PCT or post-cycle therapy to recover from the steroid cycle. Um, you know, I gained almost 30 pounds in a few months and I've lost almost 20 pounds of that, all of which was water weight. It just peeled off of me in like two weeks. Um, I went from like around 180, right now I'm like 163. So like almost 20 pounds of water weight just disappeared in a couple of weeks. You really don't hold much water on your body um, when you don't have any carbs or any sugars at all. And I stayed on carnivore throughout my entire steroid cycle. Um, the episode where you can learn about that steroid cycle was called Steroids, Motorcycles, and Jesus. One of those three, different order of those three words. But in that episode, I talk a little bit about the steroid cycle. And, you know, I've actually been able to keep and really hold on to about eight or nine pounds of lean muscle from that steroid cycle. So that was really exciting for me because I did not like walking around at... 152, 155, like, man, I, I really don't like that weight range for me. It feels a little too squirrely. Um, so right now I'm coming in at like 163, 164, somewhere in that range. Um, and man, it feels really good. So uh, pretty excited about that. I also had a couple friends point out that my voice got deeper, which is uh, something that does happen from high exposure levels to exogenous testosterone. Uh, so that was definitely interesting. So maybe go back and click on episode one of this podcast, see if you can tell if my voice is any deeper. But anyway, um, yeah, I rode carnivore out all the way through the steroid cycle, and I'm up uh, you know, quite a few pounds of muscle since doing that. So that was really cool. Okay, next question. Uh, this says, hey, Adam, I love the podcast. I found you through the carnivore episode and have shown it to many friends. You seem like someone who sets lofty goals and often achieves them. I'm not a drummer, but I went and checked out your music YouTube channel, and I'm wondering what you have planned for this project. Is All In With Adam a passion project or something that you'd like to do full time? Any goals for this project? Thanks for all that you do. This is definitely something that I've wrestled with in thinking about what this project is. You know, is this a, a permanent playground for me, like a passion project, or is this something that I'd like to do full time? To be totally honest, I would like to do this full time. I would definitely like this podcast to be my primary focus. Um, as of now, it gets, you know, 30% of my attention somewhere in that ballpark, but nowhere near uh, what, what the drum industry does, because let's be honest, I don't make money off of this podcast yet. I make nothing. I think my videos are monetized now. After a thousand subscribers, I was able to monetize them, but you know, you're talking like a few bucks a week. It's not really any serious money. I don't even make serious money on YouTube on my other YouTube channel, which has almost a quarter million subscribers getting 300 to 500,000 views a month. That only generates a few hundred dollars a month. It's not that much money. Now, the podcast world is a little bit different in, in how you can monetize um, a project like this, and I'm still exploring how that how that might come to fruition when the time is right, though it's far too early to actually expect to make any money off of a project like this. But you know, th there is something that I learned from, from the drum industry and the 10 years that I put into that world that I do take over to, to this podcasting world, and that is that you know, I really enjoy fleshing out ideas. I enjoy taking a, an idea or a concept and exploring it to a degree that many people aren't willing to explore. And as I learn things and pick up things in that process or in that journey, you know, sort of repackaging them and then distributing that to a group of people and saying, hey, let me save you some time. I've been thinking about this thing for a while and here's what I figured out. That's what a drum lesson is. That's what a good drum lesson is. And I feel that I spent a long time doing that in, in the drum world and not fully understanding why it is that I love doing it. I love repackaging lessons and distributing them to a large body of people and saying, let me help you. I like doing that. And so this podcast merely opens up all of the other doors outside of drum world to allow me to do the same thing that I've already been doing for a long time. So in a way, it doesn't feel quite as quite as much of a transition as you might think. Um, obviously, I'm not behind the drum set on uh, on a podcast like this, but realistically, you know, my other job, being an online content creator who happens to teach drum lessons, playing drums is like 10% of that job. The rest of it is behind a computer or talking into a microphone or writing lesson plans. Very little of it is actually playing drums. People don't like to hear that, but that's the reality. So this feels like less of a transition um, th than you might think. But for me, this podcast, 
I'll give you one. This is the closest I've come to really nailing down a specific goal for this podcast. Um, there's a really cool guy named Chris Williamson. He runs a podcast called Modern Wisdom, and it's very much along the lines of a masculine-themed self-improvement podcast, much like this one. And Chris has about, I want to say, 200,000 YouTube subscribers and about 100,000 Instagram followers. And I can imagine what some of his download levels look like just from having some experience in the podcast world and in being a, um, you know, I have a similar size YouTube channel in the drum world. And so I, I know about what his numbers are looking like. And for me, my goal is to be effectively in his position in about two years. So that would be about 200,000 subscribers on the YouTube channel, um, getting, you know, I would hope anywhere from three to 6,000 downloads per podcast per episode. Um, you know, I'm at about 10% of that right now. So this is a long way to go. Uh, and I'd like to get somewhere in the ballpark of 200 episodes done in that amount of time, which is a lot. We're going to have to ramp things up here pretty soon. But um, yeah, if you guys ever heard of Chris Williamson on uh, the Modern Wisdom podcast, I really like what he has going on over there. I've actually spoken with Chris, um, or rather messaged him a handful of times. I hope to get him on the podcast, on this podcast, um, in the coming months, maybe around September. So that would be really cool if that happens. But uh, I'm using him as sort of the the ideal, where that's what I'm aiming at for now. I like the position that he's in. I like what he's done with his podcast, and I'd like to be in a position like that in a couple of years. So that's about as as far as I've specified my goals. But in reality, it sounds cliche, but I'm in the grind or in the hustle phase with this project. It's just about putting out content, uh, booking the guests, and making things happen at this point. And, and I feel very fortunate that I already did this in another industry. So I'm, I'm pretty aware of what this takes. And uh, yeah, the ride is really just getting started. So Thank you guys for being here this early um, in the endeavor. This next question is pretty funny. I've, I've gotten this a few times. It says, can we get a drinking update? I know I can't be the only one worried about you. Sure, that is um, that is definitely understood. You know, I posted a, a three-part series, almost four hours of talking about how I went to rehab, um, the depths of my addiction to alcohol back in my early 20s and teens. And then, you know, not but a few months later, I was like, hey, I'm drinking again. <laughs> so that seemed like a, a rather sharp corner to take for a lot of you guys. Remember, for me, that corner took 10 years. I was sober for 10 years before I actually drank again. It's interesting, man. It's, um, it, there are so many things that are the same. There are also a lot of things that are very, very different. Let me get one easy difference out of the way. You know, my body does not react the same to alcohol as it did 10, 12 years ago. It's really not even kind of the same. When you're young, it's like you're made of rubber, right? You can just jump off of stairs and get hurt, and and everything just bounces back immediately. Everything's fine. You can drink yourself into oblivion and wake up the next day and go take a test at school. You know, now it's not like that. If I cross a certain threshold, I can reliably expect to feel like shit. That just happens. Now, I don't think that I've been what I would describe as drunk a single time, a single time since I've actually started drinking. I think the most, the furthest I've pushed it is where I can begin to tell that my speech is slightly slurred. When I notice that, I become a little bit uncomfortable where I just don't have a desire to go any further. I can hear myself um, you know, speaking differently and I really don't like that. So I tend to back down from that level. Um, you know, on average, I think I've been drinking maybe once a week, maybe that would average out, which would mean sometimes I'll drink twice a week and then the next week I won't drink at all. Um, on average, I'm having three to four drinks like that, that sort of thing, definitely catching a buzz, but it's been interesting, man. Um, some of the things that are the same are, are very, very weird. I have found that proximity is one of the best focal points for me when it comes to managing my relationship to alcohol. When I say proximity, I mean my physical proximity to the drug, the liquid that is alcohol. I do not like keeping alcohol in the house. Anytime it's here, it reminds me quite a bit of um, like back in the cocaine days. Like if it's here, I think about it. I think about it a lot to the point where it's far easier if it's just not here. It's it's out of sight, out of mind, but like fully embodied and lived. And I found that to be um, found that to be the case. So I don't like having alcohol in the house because if I do, it feels like I have to make a decision every day as to whether or not I'm going to drink. And if I am going to drink, when am I going to drink? And when I drink, how much am I going to drink? And how long do I have to drink it? These are actual thoughts that run through my mind on a day when I know that I'm going to consume alcohol. But none of these things happen if there is no alcohol to be drunk, right? If it's not around, I really don't have any of these types of thoughts. 
And so some of that patterned addict thinking um, has been left over in my mind. It's still there. It still works the same way. And so that's a that's a really clear red flag for me to say, you know what, if proximity, uh, if focusing on my proximity to alcohol is something that is going to facilitate a better relationship to alcohol, then that's something I'm really, really going to stick to. So um, Kelly and I have had plenty of discussions about this, but there is very rarely any alcohol in the house. It's one of those things where it's just easier for me to go out and drink or to buy only the amount that I want to drink and go to sleep with no alcohol in the house that night. Um, for me, that's just been a really helpful helpful focal point and a, a somewhat of a tool that I can use to manage my relationship. But other than that, everything's been relatively stable. It's a bit anticlimactic. I'm sure there's a small camp of people that <laughs> that are like, that are like, uh, somewhat hoping that my life would blow up or rather even just expecting that that might happen. I don't really think it is. I think it's a little more anticlimactic than that. But um, yeah, otherwise, so far so good. No real issues um, to report. Yeah, we're, uh, we're cruising right along. This next question came in via email, and by the way, you can always uh, email me questions at allinwithadam at gmail.com. That's where I get all my questions. You can also call the podcast hotline or text that number as well. That is in the podcast description. This question says, hey, Adam, I really enjoy your podcast. I was wondering, do you ever meditate? You seem like someone who takes care of your mental health, but I haven't heard you speak about any personal practices that you do. What keeps you sane? You know, I have tried different versions of meditation over the years, many times. The classic version of meditation for me, which is, let's just say, sitting in silence in a room and and reflecting inwardly on your thoughts or trying to sit in an absence of thought, you know, for me, that that has always been incredibly boring. It's the most challenging version of meditation, if I'm being honest. I, I reserve that kind of meditation for drug experiences, really. Like an MDMA come up, I'm absolutely putting on some quiet music, sitting in a room alone, you know, maybe in silence and going inward, right, to, to deal with that turbulent entry into the, the MDMA world. That's normally what I'll reserve that kind of meditation for. But, you know, just the other day I was listening to a podcast that was talking about types of restorative actions, right, or healing actions, which really, that's what meditation is. That's the intention, right? It's, it's to restore, to heal in some way, um, and to give your mind a, a genuine rest, a genuine break. And for me, I found that there's many more, many other things in my life that give me that same sort of restorative benefit. One of the biggest ones, this is how I spend, how I've spent, you know, 50% of my waking hours for the last two years since I bought a house is working on things. When I say working on things, I mean construction projects, right? Building things, fixing things. That could be, you know, redoing the pipes underneath my kitchen sink, it could be I'm building a 16 by 10 shed right now, a really, really, really big shed out of my backyard. Um, I've got two very large chicken coops with a giant chicken run, uh, running power cables and camera cables all over my house. My house is kind of like a compound the way that it's set up. There's like many different structures and areas outside. Uh, gardening is another example of that. Pressure washing the house, mowing the yard, like these sort of physically and mentally engaging activities, especially when it's the combo, when it's mentally engaging and it involves problem solving, but it also requires a good amount of like like physical effort. That combination, man, that really gives me all of those restorative and healing benefits that, that I think people oftentimes take from meditation. And there's a little bit more to it than just getting in the flow state that is building something, right? It's a little bit more than that. It's also the residual pride that comes from creating something or just from solving a problem. Like I spent three or four hours the other day redoing all of the pipes under my kitchen sink because they began leaking or something was clogged. I don't remember what the problem was, but basically I had to take everything out and rebuild a kitchen sink. And I had never done that before, but it's pretty basic plumbing if you're at all familiar with plumbing. Underneath the kitchen sink is not actually that intimidating. I think toilets actually get a little bit trickier. But in doing that, you know, I kind of had to start from scratch. I had to research all of the individual pieces and parts and names that are underneath the sink. I had to go buy a kit and a few little adapters and um, different pipes and some tools to cut the pipes up. And, you know, that entire process as I'm engaged in that process, even whether it's it's Googling the name of a specific adapter on my phone or reading the instructions of this, you know, under the sink P-trap drain kit that I had to buy at Home Depot, you know, any part of that process, I find myself 
unable to think about anything else going on. I can't dwell on existential philosophy. I can't dwell on this specific problem that I have going on in my life, or let's just say a fight that Kelly and I had a week ago. All of that disappears. It disappears in the same way that it does when I play drums. It disappears in the same way that it does when I'm, you know, measuring to make a certain cut on a piece of wood. Like I can name all of these different, you know, behavioral activities that engage me in such a way that I no longer that I I no longer find myself able to think about other things. And for me this serves the same function that meditation does. It's like a like a forced kind of flow state in a way. And so, you know, do I sit in a room and meditate? No, I've honestly never, for all of the countless hours that I've spent trying to do that, especially back in like the rehab days, you know, I have never once found a discernible benefit from doing that. Yoga, sure, I've definitely found some restorative qualities from doing yoga, which does focus a lot on breath work and is a form of meditation, certainly. But for me, if there's no physical engagement, that flow state is immensely difficult um, to get into, or rather that that transcendent kind of state, right? I just can't find it without some sort of physical engagement. So uh, for me, the best example of this truly is like construction, like framing up a shed. Like I find myself lost in that process. And again, the residual pride from looking at the thing that you built, that also feels like it's restorative in a strange way. So for me, that type of engagement Um, creation and problem solving. That type of engagement is the closest thing to a functional meditation that I've ever found, and that's kind of what I do to focus on my uh, mental health. Of course, the other thing that I do is workout. I lift weights about four days a week, I tend to ramp that way down when I'm doing big construction projects because I'm just abusing my body for like eight hours a day. Um, so like I haven't worked out in the last few weeks, uh, specifically because I've been you know framing a giant shed. So a lot of physical labor that goes into that. Um, but for me, exercise is the only other true fundamental part of my mental health that just has to be there. Um, so yeah, physical engagement, solving problems, building things, that's how I stay sane. This question came from Instagram. It says, hey Adam, I really enjoyed your philosophy episode on meaning and morality. I'm curious how you describe your overall philosophy to a total stranger. If you had to put yourself in a philosophical box or a camp, which would it be? So, oh man, we're gonna go down a wormhole on this one. For me, there are, there are really only two camps. It's science and religion. Um, we could modernize those or personify those and say we've got Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, right? That would be that would be one of the easier ways to say that. You know, for me, I definitely do take the hybridized approach that I described in my uh, in episode eight of this podcast on meaning and morality. But for me, if I'm being totally honest, having listened to countless hours of Sam Harris, countless hours of Jordan Peterson, and of course their colleagues that are within their same respective camps of science respectively and religion respectively, I line up a, a little bit closer to the religion side, just a little bit. Now, I don't claim to be a religious person. I do not claim to be a Christian at all, but I, I also do not claim to be an atheist. I reject both of those extremist views um, in, in all of their forms. I'm, I'm much closer to agnostic in, in, in that I, I surrender that I don't know. I certainly have to do that all the time. But to say this in the most broad sense, I have seen and experienced way too much shit to think that there is no higher power whatsoever. I do believe that there is some version of a God out there. Now, filling in that blank, describing that God is where I get lost. I really don't know what to tell you there. I don't know what to tell you. But I have experienced some some things, some existential truths that I cannot get past using rationalism, right? One of them being, let me tell you, one of the most powerful philosophical discoveries that I've ever made, um, and that is the the universal polarity of chaos and order. There's a, an early episode on this podcast called Tactical Artistry. It's actually episode two of this podcast, and you know, I really wasn't sure how how all in I wanted to go on this podcast, especially back then. So. That episode, Tactical Artistry, discusses uh, somewhat of a spectrum that I see around the world. Now, what that episode was, was essentially chaos and order, the philosophical concept of chaos and order, but it was sort of catered to musicians, which is why we called it Tactical Artistry, but it's chaos and order, but the diet version, right? Uh, For me, the discovery of chaos and order and seeing this, this global existential duality in all domains of life, whether it's testosterone and estrogen, whether it's it's creativity versus um, like militant, ta- 
tactical achievement. Um, I could go on for days about the, the, the dynamic that is chaos and order. But to me, that seems built into the structure of the universe. It just fucking does. Now, I can't make any sense of that. That seems pre-built into the dynamic of this world. It's just how things seem to work. And I don't know that science can address any of this stuff at the moment. And really, this is where I become um, a little bit more comfortable in the air quotes religious camp. It is that science does not adequately inform issues of morality. It, it just can't touch a lot of these things. And of course, there's the classic, you know, you cannot derive an, um, an ought from an is. Science tells you what is, but it cannot tell you what ought to be. And the counter to that, the Sam Harris argument would be that what is good on a on a moral compass, is simply whatever aligns with your well-being. But that is so goddamn loose what aligns with your well-being. Well, who is to say? Who is to say? Uh, you know, you're, you're then seeking somewhat of an even higher good to determine what might be in service of your well-being, right? So I don't find that the Sam Harris explanation fully satisfies me. It still leaves me with so many questions um, that I feel like I, there, there's a gap to be filled in. Now, of course, this is a common thing that that Christians do, the God of the gaps, right? Whenever there's a gap, they just slam God in there and say that's what it is. My thing is, you know, what filling in that that moral gap when science and reason and rationality hits its logical conclusion or it at least informs us about topics of morality as best that it can whatever's after there i'm not trying to fill in that gap with a specific god that i make any claims about my claim is merely that it appears something is there something fills that gap uh, between morality and science. Something must be here. And it seems to contain, whatever that gap is, it seems to contain some kind of pre-built, some kind of predetermined structure. Chaos and order would be the best example of that. It seems like this shit came with the universe. It feels like the 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 universe came with specific laws already built in. I'll give you another good example. I had this epiphany with with music a long time ago. You know, we have a specific frequency range that we're able to hear. Now, we can measure using tools frequencies that are outside of the human hearing range. That would be like, let's say, dolphins communicating at, at a frequency range that we cannot hear, but we can measure it. Um, and same, I believe there's whales that communicate actually much lower frequencies that we might be able to feel, but we certainly couldn't, couldn't hear them with our auditory systems. So there's still this range. And... The question is, well, why doesn't the range extend far higher or far lower? Why are there pre-built limitations on these frequencies that we're able to hear? That seems like something like a natural law, right? It's like the earth came with laws, and we could, we could apply this to physics. There are many laws of physics. You have to obey the pre-existing laws of physics in order to fly. It's one of the reasons that it took us so long to fly. We had to, we had to discern the rules, the natural laws that came with this planet. And music is like this as well. You know, mathematics, for example, if you wanted to unpack um, highly complex rhythms like drum patterns, they are, not, they are not infinite. You are limited by math. There's a predetermined structure that came with this planet that you cannot deviate from. So it's like you're bound by these laws. And you can call them the laws of physics. In many cases, they would be. In flight, yes, it's laws of physics. But you can't fuck with the laws and you didn't make them up. They were already here. So to me, when we're talking about is there a God, it sure seems like something something was here that set up these goddamn rules. I don't know why the rules are here, but I know they're here, and I know that we can't break them. We can't seem to mess with these rules very much. So this leads me down the intellectual wormhole of effectively natural law, that there's just things about this planet that are not that are not entirely malleable. Now, as I described in the Meaning and Morality podcast, you know, morality is is in my view partially fixed but malleable on the top end. So it's both. This is why I have this hybridized approach because you know, we can certainly bend laws of morality, let's say. You can try and invent them, but I really I don't think that ever fucking works. And much out within chaos and order, it's not all order or all chaos that you want. You want the duality to be dancing. You want there to be a balance between chaos and order. 
this is why I have this this view of morality and philosophy in general, that you want to have rationality and the mysticism of religion at war with each other in your own mind at all times. Because I feel that one of the reasons that America is so successful, the most powerful, richest country in the entire world, and it only took a couple hundred years to get there, is because the founding fathers recognized that you can take natural law or the idea that there's a divinity of man, that there's an inherent value that comes, that, or let's just say rights and values to each human that we don't create. They are You're born with them. That's a natural right. That's synonymous with the belief in God. You can take that ideological concept and then you can say, well, on top of this, we will use our rationale to discuss what exactly these rights look like. It's not pure blind religion, but it is saying that on a natural level, you are born with something innately innately divine and sacred um, in your humanity, but we're gonna need to talk about this as well. It's the marriage of intellect, rational reason, and natural law, which is synonymous with the belief in God or a, a universal principle to this planet that we can't seem to fuck with. And when you marry those two things together, again, it takes about 200 years and you got the most powerful country that ever existed. I think it's because that is the proper balance of chaos and order. So what philosophical camp am I in? Um, I think just the fact that I leave the door open that there may be a God of some kind, that puts me closer to the religious side of the spectrum than it does um, the rationalist side of the spectrum. But with that said, I cannot have a rational, I probably shouldn't use that word, I cannot have um, an intellectually stimulating discussion about a topic like this without borrowing from both camps. I need the Sam Harris quotes and I need the Jordan Peterson quotes in order to to express my position. So, you know, I suppose I, I owe a debt of gratitude to both of those men specifically and many other people within their camps for some of the views that they've helped me you know, articulate even in my own mind over the years. But I would say predominantly I fall in the the religious camp, though I am not particularly religious, I just believe that based on my own experiences and based off my my intellectual quests in the in these worlds, um, there is far, far too much here to make a claim that it's all merely bound by the chemical soup that's in your mind. I think consciousness is is significantly more special than that. Um, and, and I also have no doubt that we will not quantify or understand consciousness within my lifetime. Not a fucking chance. So the faith required for me to believe that one day we will quantify it and it'll all be explained by science, that requires more faith of me than it does to say, maybe there's some mystical shit out here and I'm just too dumb to have figured that out yet. This question also came in via Instagram. It says, how's married life, Adam? Do you hate each other yet? LOL. All the best from Melbourne, Australia. Shout out Melbourne. Um, that's where my my signature snare drum actually, sorry, we're talking about drums for a second. Um, my signature snare drum is actually made by a guy named uh, Sal Morales down in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, he's an awesome craftsman and a woodworker, but I'm really, really proud of that snare drum. I'm proud of him for making it too, man. He's an absolute badass and uh, I'd love to go to Australia. One of the few places I would really, really like to go. So, how's married life? Um, good, man. Good. Honestly, a very mild transition for us because we've been together over eight years now, and we got married on our eight-year anniversary. So, we've been married just a few months now. Um, we already bought the house. You know, we've got all the pets. Um, it's it's really just chugging right along, man. We are still trying for a kid, so that's exciting. That could happen uh, any day now, I suppose, but we're not particularly rushed on, on making that happen as soon as humanly possible, but that's a very exciting, life-changing thing that's sort of sort of dancing around in the unknown, so that's on the way. But overall, overall Kelly and I are very good, um, and you know, we talked about this in our episode. Kelly has an episode on this podcast. I believe it's episode seven. Um, you know, one of the things I think that, that keeps us from having any any serious day-to-day fights, any bickering, any like normal annoying shit that you might see couples around town having, you know, we, we communicate, we communicate. I would imagine it's above average from the things that I've read and things that I've heard. We talk at least an hour and a half to two hours every single day. It's how we start every morning if we're awake at the same time and it's how we end every night. And so just always touching base day to day on things, it keeps so many problems from coming up because 
honestly, you, you run into problems before they really manifest themselves fully um, because you, you learn what somebody might be annoyed with day to day, right? You check in with them frequently. So because of that, our, our relationship has been, relatively speaking, like uneventful. It's not like we have these crazy ups and downs or swings. We, we maintain a pretty good level of stability, and I think a lot of that could be attributed to how frequently we communicate, uh, which you know isn't always possible for everybody, but it's possible for us because I work from home. So if she's home, I'm home, and we end up talking about um, our lives together all the time. So yeah, the big thing there is uh, kid. That one's that one's coming. So well, <laughs> a lot of podcast content coming from that. That's for sure. But no baby just yet. We'll keep you posted. This question came in via email. It says, hey, Adam, longtime drum fan here. You gave us an episode about the items on the shelf behind you, but tell us about this new wall. Looks like you have a lot of cool shit up there that you need to tell us about. Yeah, so I've gone with a gallery wall behind me or just a wall with a whole bunch of cool shit on it. Um, I got some stuff that I haven't actually hung up yet. Let me show you some of this cool shit. So I've got a vintage saw, you know, construction. Here's the saw, pretty cool. I think this is from the 30s. My buddy Phil gave me this. Phil actually gave me a handful of cool things over here. Um, he also gave me the ball and chain. I think you can see it right down there. Um, it's like an old cannonball, a legit cannonball, and a chain off of some ridiculously industrial piece of equipment. Um, so that's sort of running with the marriage analogy thing, marriage metaphor. But Phil is a good buddy of mine. He's given me a few things on this wall. He's a really into antiques and collecting things, and I hope to have him on the podcast too. Phil is a trip. He's a he'd be a very fun guest, very interesting guy. Um, so this saw that he gave me here, he actually just gave me this yesterday. It's going up all the, on the wall soon. It's for construction. I just absolutely love construction. I built this studio that I'm in right now. Did all the soundproofing for it. Um, I've done again tons of renovations on this house, chicken coops and sheds and all sorts of stuff. So I love construction. It's been a passion of mine that's developed over the last few years. So that's what the saw is for. I got these two little weird signs off eBay. Check these out. So these, what is it? These are off of a, an old naval ship. It was a U.S. ship that was stationed somewhere in Asia. Baggage locker is what this sign says. Uh, and this one says apprentice with, I imagine, the Chinese writing for apprentice that's right above it. I thought these were both fitting. Baggage locker, because you know I bring a lot of my shit into this room and talk about it, so this is certainly, this podcast is a locker for my baggage. Um, and then apprentice, because, you know, always learning. Come on now, you should know that one. Um, what else? on this wall. Um, some old ammo signs. Um, I'm really into firearms. I haven't done a firearm episode yet. I know you guys have asked about that one. A few of you have. I'd love to do that, some firearm philosophy. And I'd love to have a gun expert on as well. Uh, but I'm really, really passionate about guns. I have a large collection of guns. Um, I thought it was a little heavy handed to put an actual gun on the wall, but uh, we can talk about firearms in another episode for sure. Um, I have some vintage needlepoint here, several different animals. I've got chickens, I've got a, a big deer, I've got a bobcat, and I've got an eagle. Um, all sorts of cool animals. What else? Toyota, big Toyota nerd. Um, wife drives a Lexus, I drive a Tundra. Um, we're very, very into uh, we're we're Toyota family. Let me say it that way. Uh, I got a film reel over here, very into videography and filming. If you've ever seen my other channel, I certainly go a lot harder in the the videography world over there. Um, yeah, I don't know. I suppose I could go, you know, in great detail for every single thing on this wall, but that seems a, a bit silly. Uh, I got my Rhino up here. Shout out Rhino, my my savage pit bull. Sometimes I got to channel my my inner rhinoceros to get these episodes done. I got one other cool thing I'll show you. This is. This is a porcelain sign uh, from Walls, South Dakota for uh, um, an Indian motorcycle dealership. It's a little too glary, so I haven't kept this on the wall too much, but I absolutely love Indian motorcycles. I have never owned an Indian motorcycle. I've only owned Hondas, but my next motorcycle will undoubtedly be the Indian Scout Bobber. I'm in love with that thing. It's just uh, it's a hard trigger to pull on a very expensive five-figure toy, but... Uh, Maybe I'll do it. Support the podcast. Help me get a motorcycle. Come on now. This next question gets a little dangerous, so let's uh, let's tiptoe in the political waters here. It says, Adam, what are your political leanings? I'm guessing that you're a former lefty coming from the music industry, but I can't tell which pill you took to break free. Kudos on your open-minded approach and truth-seeking nature. You rock. So you are correct in that I am a former lefty, for sure. Um, I no longer identify um, as someone on the left by any stretch of the imagination. There are certainly specific 
issues where I do identify with a more traditional libertarian view. Right now, my political orientation, I describe myself as where the conservatives and the libertarians kind of cross over. That's where I live. I really dislike the, what's the best way to say it? The the moral self-righteousness that traditional conservatives seem to have, um, it's almost as though they they take militant religion and try to infuse that moral superiority into, you know, into how they want a country to be run. And in reality, I, I, I tend to fall away from any conservative ideology in, in that perspective. I go much more libertarian where it's just none of my fucking business how someone wants to live their life. But there are undoubtedly some moral lines that I believe we cannot cross, where I think we, we cannot take a constructionist view to everything. There are some things that are natural laws, things that are built into the structure of this universe, and we cannot progress past these lines. And so in some of those cases, I find myself arguing as though I am a conservative. But I will say that, that we have to remember that political polls shift all the time. If I had been asked this question 10 years ago, even with the same mind and knowledge that I have now, I would probably be significantly more oriented towards the left than I am towards the right as I am right now. And that is because political polls shift all the time. So what was a progressive ideology 20 years ago is sort of the conservative argument now. And as the topics change, as the parties change, and the topics change at the same time, I think it's important to remember that there are times when we need to make progress and there are times when we need to conserve what we have. And so to identify yourself, to dig your heels in and say no matter what the topic is, I am progressive, that's foolish. And then to say, well, no matter what the topic is, I am conservative, I also think that is foolish. I think it is, it's only appropriate that you assess each topic and say, is this an area, a domain, where I think our country and our political system needs to push forward, or is this an area where we have pushed enough and it would be wiser to focus on preserving or conserving what we have right now? And as I survey a majority of the political topics that run through the news cycles over the last few years, I tend to be of a more conservative mindset. That is not me identifying as a as a red-blooded conservative American in every single issue across the board. That's not how I look at things, and I can name many issues where I do not align with uh, even modern conservatives. But there are many, many issues where I think progress ha needs, needs to be slowed, let me say it that way, where we are trampling over certain fundamental truths where, where it would be wiser to stop and have a discussion and take a look around at what we have here. Isn't this worth preserving before we smash all of this in a million pieces to build up something new? You know, it's a universal truth that building things is very difficult and tearing things down is not very difficult. So in that sense, when people talk about, let me just throw out one statement for you, the entire American system being fundamentally racist and worthy of being destroyed to the core. Rip it all down and start over. Shred the Constitution and start over. That type of ideological thinking strikes me as extremely dangerous because what, what this country is, what we've built over the last 260-something years, is not something that I'm willing to throw away quickly. There are way too many fucking awesome things happening to just do away with an entire system. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have the discussion about how to improve our country. That should be an ongoing and a permanent fixture um, in our political system. We should always be having that discussion. But it's these extremist ideologies that you are beginning to hear now, predominantly from the far left, uh, about, you know, for a lack of better words, burning the country to the ground, um, in that scenario, I find myself to be deeply conservative. No, let's slow down and talk about what we have going on here. Seems like it's time to conserve. So my political views definitely shift on each topic. I can tell you right now that I hate it when, if I told you that I'm a gun person and you can fill in the blanks on every other view that I have, you know, to me, that's... That is far too predictable of a person to be interesting. I'm not interested in your opinions if I can predict all of them based off of one thing that I know. That lacks so much nuance that the only conclusion is that that I can make is that you have bought hook, line, and sinker a predetermined ideology. You were sold something, you bought the whole thing, and you have no real opinions that belong to you. Um, and th that's not how, how I approach any of these topics at all. Let me give you an, uh, um, a specific topic that where I depart from conservatives, um, that would be, 
you know, drugs. The drug war was a was an unbelievable failure. It still is to this day. The fact that we have people that are locked up in jail because of a plant is fucking egregious. Now, for me, this is a libertarian view. It is none of your business. And if you're unfamiliar with with the the libertarian view, you know, one of my one of my favorite ways to look at this is I think about certain scenarios. Um, think about if you had a neighbor across the street and you knew somehow you knew that they were smoking meth in the house. That's what they were doing. Do you think you have the right to call the police and have them stopped? For me, you only have the right to do that if your rights are being infringed. So if, if them smoking meth across the street from you if it just bothers you and you don't like knowing it, if you are concerned that maybe they would start cooking meth or maybe they would start selling meth and then shady characters would start coming to your neighborhood, you know, your level of concern is irrelevant. It is when your individual rights are violated, that's when you get to call the cops on them. And so just your knowledge of someone doing an, um, an illegal thing or just a thing that you don't like or approve of, that has nothing to do with whether or not um, you're actually going to do something about it. And I'll be the first to admit, there are a lot of things that people do that I don't like, that I could make a personal moral judgment on and say, that sure seems to be a dumbass thing to do. I think, you know, juggling knives is really fucking stupid. You know, <laughs> I, can, I can give you a long list of dumbass things that a lot of people do that I personally, um, whether, whether on a moral level or on an intellectual level, think are wrong or just plain stupid. But I don't think I have the right to tell anyone what to do, with the exception of when my rights are being violated. And this is the original, the original purpose of the American government, was to protect the rights of individuals and absolutely nothing else. And so in that way, I am somewhat conservative in that I, I believe the government should stick to the singular thing that it set out to do, which was not to coddle the American people, not to make promises to the American people, but rather to support and protect your right to an adventure. That's what America is. It's a right to an adventure. And the rights that you have within that adventure include things like freedom of speech, uh, freedom of assembly, and the government's role is merely to make sure that you can have those rights throughout the entire adventure and that no other individual violates them. So for me, this is a very limited, very small description of government. This is the type of government that I want. And in that way, that makes me relatively conservative. Um, but with that said, some of the the religiously rooted moral superiority stances that the Republican Party has taken over the years are disgusting, you know. Um, predominantly the drug war. That's a great example. We got a whole lot of people in cages for doing drugs. Um, and the libertarian in me is is pretty grossed out by that. So that's an area where I consider myself pretty, pretty goddamn progressive. But again, it's topic by topic by topic. Um, so I don't feel comfortable ever labeling myself in its entirety, in, in my entirety, um, as one political party or the other. I really bounce around. But I can tell you that my natural disposition as I've gotten older has become more conservative. And when I say natural disposition, I don't mean conservative as in like I get older and then I like Trump. Not It's not that sort of thing. I mean conservative just in nature, right? Conservative in everything that I do. I take less risks than I used to, right? I want less change than I used to. And this isn't even political. This is like in my daily life. Um, I want the more reliable vehicle rather than the cooler vehicle. I don't need the new shiny thing. I want the thing that works. That's a conservative way to look at things. I would rather save my money than spend it. That's a more conservative way to approach your finances. Um, in many, many different domains or realms of my life, I find myself being more, more conservative by nature than I used to. And so yes, that does influence how I see certain political issues because I value stability, I value safety, I value holding on to what I have rather than risking it all for something new. And that does color many of my political opinions. But um, you know, as we get further into this podcast, as I have different guests that have different political leanings, I undoubtedly hope to dive into more of these specific issues over time uh, because I believe each one deserves a tremendous amount of conversation. You know, I'll give you one example of a topic that I wouldn't dare touch 
briefly, um, is abortion. It's an incredibly complex topic. Anyone on either side of this argument that attempts to dumb this down um, to a mere sentence or two, and that's all you need to know or all you need to think about, to me, that that's a... That's a foolish single-factor analysis telling me there's one thing I need to know and now the whole problem is solved, that it is way, way, way fucking more complicated than that. It deserves hours and hours of discussion. It deserves really vulnerable, painful conversations where you truly dig to the bottom of this issue as far as your intellect allows you to go. So a topic like abortion is one where I would love to have a three-hour discussion about that topic and really, really bounce around both sides of that argument. That's what this podcast is for. That that's what um, that's what conversation is for to really deeply and truly explore issues like that, um, especially when they're that complicated. So. We're not doing abortion today. Don't worry, I'm not going to torture you with that one. But um, I do hope to get to get really far down the wormhole with specific topics like that one. Um, gun philosophy is another one. You know, I, I even mentioning that I'm a gun person without really unpacking some of those arguments is a somewhat of a dangerous thing to do because. That's also a three, four, five hour discussion. So I'd like to have somebody on, um, perhaps someone who is who is on either side of that argument would be interesting. Someone who's really plugged into the gun world and someone who is, you know, really, really not into guns at all. I would love to have both of those people on. Same with abortion, right? I would love to to bounce across the spectrum on some of these topics. So hopefully this gives you a better picture or a better understanding of how I perceive political issues, but it's, uh, it's really topic by topic, man. I can't give you a concrete answer across the board. All right, guys, that is all I have for you in this episode of All In with Adam. This has been episode 19, and I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you guys have a fantastic week. I'm working on this uh, this goddamn shed. It has been a project and a half, but um, yeah, hopefully I have some more cool life updates coming for you soon. Um, yeah, I got a couple of guests in the works, so keep an eye out for these upcoming episodes. I'm really enjoying some of these deep dive exploratory conversations like I had with uh, Devin Sumner and Sage Duvall were the last two guests here. I really enjoy those kinds of conversations, so I hope to have more guests on soon. If you have any guests that you would like to see on this podcast, maybe somebody that I don't even know, please drop them in the comments or send them my contact information, have them reach out. I'm definitely on the hunt for new guests here, but I'm in a weird I'm in a weird spot with this podcast where you know, and let me just close out with this. You know, I am so fucking spoiled coming from the drum industry where I have a certain amount of respect because of what I've accomplished in the industry. You know, when you message somebody on Instagram and you have a quarter million followers, they more than likely are going to respond. They're going to be flattered and they're going to entertain whatever it is that you're offering. Same with YouTube. When you have a quarter million subscribers and you ask somebody if they want to be on your YouTube video, they will more than likely say yes. And that 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 access that, that kind of leverage in the drum industry, I'm so accustomed to. It's very rare that I can't get someone to respond to me. And it's weird coming, coming in a new business, in a new sector um, with this podcast. You know, I, sending someone a message on Instagram with only 700 Instagram followers, man, it's really like a total toss up if they will even entertain responding to my message or entertain being on this podcast at all. So that's been really interesting. It's been, it's been, um, humbling in the best way possible. It feels good for me to experience that, like, oh, this is what a majority of people in the world have to deal with, right? It's hard to crack into industries, and so I'm enjoying the challenge, but if you'd like to help me hack this challenge in one way or another, uh, if you know someone who you think would be a good guest for this podcast, uh, please send them my info. I'd love to talk with them. I'm absolutely on the hunt for podcast guests right now and hope to have some good friends um, on here soon. So thank you guys for listening. This has been episode 19. I will catch you next week. Take care.